Welcome to the Product Development Podcast. I'm your host, Adam Wakeling, a product manager passionate about enriching my own understanding of how great products are made. In this episode, I speak with Gabrielle Hayes, who is a product and agile coach. Gabrielle is co-founder and instructor at Product X Agile, which brings expertise to product teams in the form of human-centered, on-demand, self-paced courses. She's also passionate about all things product discovery, which is the main topic of today's episode. Gabrielle, many thanks for joining the podcast. Absolutely. Excited to be here with you. So to create a bit of a foundation for the discussion, I'm keen to get your view on the definition of product discovery. I mean, what comes to your mind when someone says the words product discovery? So the way I sum it up the best is, are you building the right thing for the right user at the right time? And so I think there's a lot of tactics that you can throw in there around how to answer those questions appropriately and make sure you can say yes to each one of those. Um, But it's just simply giving yourself as a product manager that validation and not keeping you up at night to say, am I doing what I'm supposed to be doing? I think in terms of that, then where does it fit in in the kind of product development lifecycle? You know, is it something very much upfront? It's the first thing you do. And then once it's finished, you kind of forget about it. Those assumptions are kind of validated, whatever else, and you move on. Or is it a very much a iterative process? You know, where does that fit in in your eyes? Yeah, I think it's very much iterative. And I think there is something to be said that it's probably heavier in the earlier stages, right? Mm -hmm. Especially if you're thinking about initially launching a brand new product or an MVP, right? That's a huge word that we hear a lot in our industry. You're going to need a lot more discovery and a lot more research when you have nothing. And so I think it's perfectly acceptable to expect that you'll be doing a lot of it at the very beginning when you don't have any data, any background. But you shouldn't stop doing it once you have a product out there because the whole point of having MVPs or having iterative development is strictly to continue getting feedback and continue learning and making improvements. And so product discovery is a huge piece of that, uh, getting out in front of your customers, talking to them, learning from them. And so I definitely consider it a key piece of the product development lifecycle that you continue on forever and always. And you know, hey, a key, a key part of the PDLC is killing your product, right? Like, when do you know is the right time to do that? And you probably need discovery to know when <laughs> is the right time to do that. <laughs> if we're talking about granular features, even, is, is it still product discovery? Can it be as granular as a specific feature within an existing product? Oh, absolutely. Mm-hmm. One of my favorite product discovery techniques is the Kano analysis model. And I use that down to colors of buttons on the screen. I mean, (laughs) emotions are everything for humans. And I know you touched on it earlier, right? I mean, as humans, we all make assumptions, whether it's how we use something or how we build something. And so being able to dispel those assumptions and making sure we're building what our users actually want. So I think it's important you're using it for for literally everything that you're putting into your product. And I'll say that I see product managers who interact with their users and their customers so well that they get to a point where they don't have to do formal discovery because they know, right? They know what their customers are going to say. They know what questions they're going to get asked. But in general, it should be something that you continue doing for each and every piece of your product that you're building. 
So I guess it's, it's really building that deep empathy with the user or customer over time. And yeah, those assumptions becoming kind of validated and it's kind of that very much a oneness <laughs> dynamic between the, the product manager and the, the user or customer. That's right. In terms of, uh, I suppose, the fundamental building blocks in product discovery, I mean, you mentioned some things around emotions there, and I dive a bit deep into that later on. But in terms of an overarching structure of what product discovery looks like, maybe we you can kind of give that overview, and then we can kind of dive a bit deeper into each of those constituent parts. So I think it starts with what is your product goal? You know, what is the high level problem you're trying to solve, and what is your high level goal? And that will help guide some of the discovery techniques that you think about, some of the questions or interactions that you may think about with your customers. And then you should even have a separate goal for those discovery sessions, right? It's not always going to be your user telling you, yes, I'm going to buy this thing if you build it just like this. You know, that may not be the exact goal or, or hope that you have going into those conversations. And so I think as long as you kind of go in with the end in mind, then you can start getting down, like you said, to those very specifics and knowing exactly what you need out of those building blocks um, to make it successful. But there's nothing worse than wasting your users and customers' time because it's limited. And you want to build that, like you said, that oneness with them because you want those champions who each and every time you need to tap into them to get validation or dispel assumptions, they're like, yeah, I'm super happy to talk to you because each and every time I do, something good comes out of that call. But also, listen, the reality is, as product managers right now, we're being asked to do way more with way less. And so finding time for strategy and being able to effectively do these discovery techniques is getting really, really hard. And so you don't want to waste your own time. So you kind of do have to go in with a plan and make sure you know what you're going into to tackle. So that way it's effective of your own time as well. Yeah, I suppose on the, the time side, particularly companies that maybe do agile, if you're churning out features and you have expectations that things need to be done and there needs to be a certain pipeline that's fulfilled for customer requests or bugs and all that sort of stuff, you know, how do you balance trying to think about that plus also doing the discovery work and making sure that you're dedicating enough time to doing that? Oh, it's an age-old challenge yeah. <laughs> for sure. Um, you know, I, I think one of the things that I teach and, and coach um, leadership a lot around this is that's a key piece of having a dynamic product team is you know you really can't expect a product manager to have devoted strategy time which is what i would consider part of being you know discovery techniques and and doing discovery is a strategic piece of their role you can't expect them to be really successful in the strategy side but also be heavily involved in execution and be great at both and that doesn't mean that they don't have the skills to be great at both. But one person, time is finite. You can't, you know, make it up. And so to me, one of our top, you know, things that we we teach and coach for leadership is do you have the right amount of team members so where that work is divided the way it should be? Um, and so, you know, specifically around agile teams, that's why we always say like the scrum master is one of the unsung heroes of the team because they can take that execution. They can keep that two-week cycle running so that the product manager can be focused on this discovery and be focused on the strategy side of things. Um, but we also know that that's a luxury, right? I mean, I can tell you probably 80% of the teams that I have worked on and continue to work on don't necessarily have the luxury of all of those roles. And so it's being very intentional with your time. And is it carving out just one hour every week 
that you're getting that done or looking at your schedule. What are you wasting time on? One of my go-tos is reporting, right? Like (laughs) one of my hills I'll die on that the minute you write a report, it's out of date. And so are you reporting on the right things? Is it being used for the right purposes? And if not, you can probably reallocate that time because if people aren't making business decisions from the reports you're providing, it's not actually valid. And so can you take the hours that you're writing reports every week? And can you repurpose that for discovery? And so an hour of discovery is better than no discovery. And so you just kind of build on that a little bit as well as maybe a good way to get your foot in the discovery door a little bit. Once you've identified the product goal, once you've identified the high level goals that you are trying to achieve, what what is this kind of specific next step that you see in terms of that framework, as it were? Is it customer research? Is it kind of customer journey mapping? You know, what what is it from your perspective, which is the, the kind of the first key part of that discovery? I think a lot of it also depends on, like you said, is this product ground up that I'm looking to just even validate the problem I'm solving and that I have a viable solution to build? Or am I validating a new feature or a change that I'm looking to make in a product that's existing and running and I already have current customers? And so I think that's a huge bifurcation that you look at because that's a very different conversation you're going to have. And so if we're looking at the former where it's brand new and I need lots of validation at this point, that's basically the goal, right? I can, I can put lots of details around it, but the main goal here is validation. Then the very next step there is I need to figure out who am I validating from? So what does that potential customer look like? And how do I get in front of them? Because if they aren't already a customer of mine, I can't just phone them up or shoot them an email or throw something up in the app that says, I'll give you a Amazon gift card if you sign up to do my survey, much harder, I think, to get in front of them and and get that information. So that becomes more tactical. Like, how do I find those customers and how do I get in front of them? But if it's current customers, current product, I'm just looking for validation on the things we already have and potential changes we're looking to make. To me, that's much easier because A, it should be your goal all along to continue to keep building that relationship with them. And so that B, when you're sending notes out to them, and that, like I said, it could be anyway, calling them, emailing them, throwing something up in the product that says, hey, we're looking for your attention. We want your feedback. They should be so enthralled in your product. And you have been providing such good support all along that there's no question asked when someone asks for feedback from your team that they want to do it. And so again, that also goes back to the culture that your team has built with your users. Yes, I want to talk to you because every time I have talked to you, it's been fruitful. You've kept in touch with me. I've seen positive changes happen happen in the product. I've seen things I have said make a difference. So it's worth my time to keep talking to you. And maybe the first couple of times you have to bribe them. There's nothing wrong with that. It's okay. (laughs) It's in your budget. Do it, you know? Um, But beyond that, it becomes much more relational where they're invested enough in the product that they care about seeing those changes happen as well, that it becomes less about having to give them something and it's more about a relational aspect. So I suppose customer success is maybe an underrated component of product discovery at that point because it fosters that kind of relationship, taking it to a point where they can really provide that useful feedback directly to you. Yeah, and I think... Uh, the relationship between product and customer success is often underrated as well, because 
I see a lot of times when I go into coach school teams, there's a lot of tension between those two teams, right? Like those are customer successes, customers, you can't talk to my customers and those are my babies. Right. And it's like, no, it's all of ours. And we should be doing this together. And, you know, one of my top tips that I tell people all the time when you're doing user interviews or discovery sessions is especially as a product person, do not go in them alone. Now don't go in them with 20 people and overwhelm your customers either. But don't go into them alone because you want someone to take notes. You want someone to validate what you heard. You want someone to bounce those ideas off of. And customer success is probably one of the best people to take into those interviews with you because they are hearing people yell and scream or you know, celebrate all day long. And so they can tie that back to a really pretty picture for you to say, we've never heard that before. Or... We are hearing that thing day in and day out. So it's really important we really start paying attention to that. Otherwise, you wouldn't have that context. And so building that relationship with your customer success team is also so, so important. In terms of non-customers then, you alluded to it a bit earlier. Obviously, it's more difficult to get to that audience that you don't own. You know, what are some tactics that people can use to reach those audiences, I suppose, in that product discovery piece where they don't have their email address or their phone number or whatever else it could be? Yeah. I mean, one of the things is, I think, especially in this now remote first world is we mentally go straight to how do we digitally reach them? And that's fine. And look, I love being remote. I don't want to discredit that. But there is something to be said about being in front of people in person and being able to show you are a real human. You actually understand that they have a real problem and you're out there asking these questions because you actually care. And so, you know, some of the ways that I've seen this work really well is, you know, if there's support groups for the problem you're trying to solve, can you go meet up with them? Are there local groups that are meeting physically that you can go meet with? And I think use the digital aspect to your help here in the sense that like going on to Eventbrite or meetup groups or whatever, Facebook, you know, Mm -hmm. there's ways to find these groups now much easier than it used to be, right? You're not pulling out the phone book in the old school days and like trying to find ways to do it. And so um, I think there's definitely ways to get out in front of people. And I think that really helps, but also your network. I mean, just pour into your network. I think there is nothing wrong with throwing up questions on LinkedIn or Facebook or Instagram and say, I think this is a problem. I'm trying to validate this. Is anyone else experiencing this? And if it's a true problem, you might have people just come out of the woodwork to say, yes, I've got this issue or yes, let's talk about it. And so you just don't know who else is experiencing it until you vocalize, you know, the problem that you're trying to to solve. Yeah, I guess particularly in the last few years as well, where we can see that we can do so much digitally and often at a lower cost than doing something in person. I guess it's hard to justify to leadership to go to some of these trade shows around the world, right? Well, and I think it's hard to quantify, right? I mean, you can't, it's very hard. I shouldn't say can't, but it's very hard to say, if you spend X amount to send me to the trade show, I'm going to come back with these amount of customer interviews and it's going to equal this dollar amount for your product. You know, that it's very hard to do that. But again, and it goes back to the relationship building, you need that relationship with your own leadership team too, that they have to trust that you're truly out there building products that, are going to make the company successful, that are going to solve users' problems. And so part of that is validating these assumptions and and building the right thing. 
So in terms of that validation process, what are the, the right questions to ask? I always find that asking why three times is usually a good tactic, but what are some tips that you can give people in terms of the right questions to ask in, in that part? Yes, um, perfect timing too, because it's funny. I just finished up kind of this uh, social media thread, I guess you could say, of some tips around customer discovery myths um, and, and ways to debunk them. But one of my like top ones too is don't ask people, will you buy this? Like, just don't because <laughs> nine times out of 10, because we're humans, right? They're going to say yes or very gently let you down. They're not going to necessarily give you the whole truth because they don't want to hurt your feelings. You are going to run into a few people who are going to be probably jerks about it. And that just is what it is. But the majority of people are going to be very kind about it. And so you're not getting the whole truth, which at the end of the day, isn't helpful. You need the whole truth to build the right thing. And so avoid the direct, like, would you buy this? Or would you pay for this? Or would you use this? So that's that would be one question I would say to avoid. The other thing is be very intentional about asking open-ended questions. If the answers that you're getting back are yes or no, the conversation stops there. I mean, think about like even just this conversation here. If you said, do you do product discovery? And I said, yes. Okay, great. Like this interview is not taking us very far. We're not helping people who are listening. So same, same concept, right? We want people to have a conversation with you. Nine times out of 10, I can tell you when I'm doing discovery sessions, I'm getting more out of people's body language and the conversation that they take me down past the question I've asked them versus the actual answer they gave me in the question. Mm. Like a perfect example of that was I took sales with me on a couple of discovery sessions once and uh, afterward we had a debrief session, right? And sales was like, we have to change this map because they didn't use the map. And we had to change this button because they didn't click on this button and we have to do this and we have to do that. And I said, hold on, pause. I said, watch. They never once used the homepage. They never once scrolled on the homepage. That is so much real estate that they are not even looking at because the very first thing they see is not interactive to them, Mm -hmm. is not providing them what they need. And so, of course, we didn't get on the call and say, do you like the homepage? But watching them, having a conversation, asking them, especially if it's something existing and you're looking at making updates, ask them, do you mind screen sharing with me? Or if you're in person, do you mind if I watch you use the system? Right away, you'll see where do they have to turn around and go back? Where do they stop? Where do they get frustrated? Where do they not remember where something was? That will tell you so much about their experience as a user that you immediately can start to formulate. That wasn't smooth for them. That wasn't intuitive for them. And those are the things that you can start diving into more. And especially if you have the tools hooked up where you can monitor, right? Like behind the scenes, where are they clicking? Where are they doing U-turns? You know, have the screen recordings uh, behind the scenes. You start to compile that with the user interviews that you did. And then you've got data and you've got emotions, and then you're golden as far as making product decisions there because you've got both emotions and data together. You can't fight both of those. If they both are telling you the same thing, you know you're headed in the right direction. What other ways can you help develop empathy with the user then? You kind of touched on a few things there. Is there anything else that comes to mind in terms of really understanding the customer even, even more deeply? Yeah. I mean, some, some things that you, know, you can't 
fake, but one of the things I always recommend, because I talk to career changers a lot, is if you can find a product role in a vertical or an industry that you do have former experience in. So uh, an, a direct example is I used to work in surgery. I, was, I worked in healthcare for a very long time before I went into to, uh, product. And so my first product role was in healthcare. And that opened up a ton of doors to me because immediately I could put myself in the user's shoes. I knew exactly the life they were living trying to use my product because I lived that life. So it's instant empathy because you've been there, done that. You got the t-shirt just like they're living every day. So I think that's one key thing if you can, especially if you're changing industries or changing careers, that's, that's a huge way to just naturally unlock that empathy. But the other part of it I, I say all the time is even if we live very different lifestyles, you and I, as an example, right? Like right on this call, you said, I don't have kids. You and I live in different countries. We're on different time zones. But I guarantee you give us five minutes to talk personally about something. We'll find something in common that we can relate on. And that alone right there, it's one of those reasons that I say, start to find your champions of your customers who want to continue to talk to you about feedback. Because your first few minutes on the call with them after you're, you, know, you do this regularly, it's not like, hey, Joe, we're getting ready to build this feature. I need your thoughts. It's like, hey, Joe, how are your kids this weekend? Or are your kids out of school? Or how was your trip to Italy? Like, you instantly kind of knock down the, the stress of I'm going to give feedback or I'm doing this work call thing. You knock down the stress a little bit and you just like, let people be them. Let them be free. Let them tell you how they're feeling. And also, I always try to tell people to, especially for product managers who are nervous about the, the product discovery process, because they're probably going to get yelled at some, right? Like people don't like everything you build. If it sucks, it sucks. Like let them yell at you. It's okay for them to yell at you, especially because if you're doing product discovery, it's because you care. It's because you're trying to change it. So tell them that. You can yell at me. I'm doing this because I care and because I want to change it. So tell me what you hate. I need to know what you hate so I can fix it. So let's say you kind of mentioned the MVP earlier on. When you're launching the MVP, what, what comes next at that point in that product discovery piece? You talked about iteration. So is it a case of then saying, okay, now we've launched this, is it actually doing what we expected it to do? What's the, uh, the process there? Yeah, so I think it's redefining goals, right? So we have our MVP goals and they should be short and sweet. Um, I think you see far too many companies, you know, MVP, I think has become a buzzword, right? So <laughs> far too many companies say, oh, everything we build is going to be an MVP and it'll ride for two years. No, that's totally not <laughs> the point of it. And so redefining those goals. So short and sweet for the MVP, have we hit them? Have we not? And then how do we move on to the next thing? If we haven't hit them, why haven't we? And what are we going to change? If we have hit them, what do we want next? Is it staying down the same path? Because it may be, it worked out great. And now we got to shore this thing up. We have to make it more robust. We got to keep growing it. Or it may be, we're going to completely change gears. And so then that's going to come with a whole new set of goals and outcomes and KPIs and you know all the jazz of all the things that you should be monitoring. Um, and so I think it's not only iterating the product and what you're building, but continuing to iterate your outcomes and what you're expecting of it. Um, because that should be guiding you and all of your decisions as a team. 
So what sort of activities would you recommend for people doing product discovery to really bring all the data together and to judge whether something's successful or not? You know, well, what sort of things should people be doing um, as well in documenting along the way? Yeah, certainly. So I always just recommend going back to the basic business model canvas. Do we actually understand how we're making money, why we're making money, who our people are, what our channels are, our partners, like that kind of stuff. But also your problem canvas. I don't see a lot of teams using it, but I think it's really good to have this singular piece of paper that you go back to and like, this is kind of the main problem we're solving right now. And most products are going to solve multiple problems along the way, but there should be this kind of main singular problem that you're intending to solve. And so everyone on the team should be able to articulate that without any question, without any prompting, like we should know exactly what that problem is. Also, you know, I talked about the Kano. That's my favorite personal one because there are artifacts that come out of that, right? Like I have a very specific positive and negative way of asking the same question. Um, And then I plot those out. Those go on a graph and plotting those out then helps me prioritize what I build. And so if for whatever reason, a stakeholder or a leader or a board member and wanted to know why did you build this over this or that over that, I can go back and say, look, this was the journey of our discovery session. And this is how we got here. And it's not always about having to kind of prove what you did. But it's also nice to have for your own self go back and say, why did we decide to do this over this, right? You live in it so much day to day, that sometimes you forget about it. And so As much as I say, you know, reporting is dead the minute you write it because it's outdated, there is something also to be said about keeping some of that documentation to go back to it because something that comes out of, you know, discovery right now may not be a huge problem for customers now, but it may come back up again in six months and it may come back up as a big roaring problem. And it helps you to go back and say, hey, I've got all this information and all this research and data that we had from six months ago. Let's go ahead and just start from that versus having to start from scratch. Mm. I'm not a huge proponent of being very strict with documentation. Teams get lost in like, well, this is exactly what my documentation has to look like. And then they, they lose a lot of time in making documentation look a certain way. But don't lose the information that you're getting from your team and from your customers, because you'll never know when you need to go back and, and reference it. So in terms of prioritization, then maybe you've got a lot of problems that need solving. Knowing what to do in what order, I mean, from your perspective, how does prioritization fit into the product discovery piece? I love to tell teams, give, especially your developers, give them a mix of big, hefty, this is a lot of creative problem solving work that we need to tackle. And then like low hanging fruit, quick wins. And I like to mix those in because I think it's, unrealistic to expect anyone to be heavy creative problem solvers 24-7. I think the most genius artistic people in the world still need breaks, right? And so that's how I look at it is I look at when I get all of the kind of discovery information compiled that I'm looking at at the moment, I'm like, okay, here are maybe the top three big hefty goals that I have that I want us to do. Which one makes the biggest impact first? Okay, that one's first. We're going to tackle that. And then what's kind of this small, low-hanging fruit that we can throw in the middle? And then we're going to take number two. And then what's the next small, low-hanging fruit we can throw in there? And then we're going to take number three. Just so that way we have a chance to like breathe. 
And then we're getting back ramped up again. And then we're going to breathe. And then we're going to get ramped back up again. So that's one of the key ways I look at prioritization. And that's less specific, but it's just, again, that empathy with your team, realizing they're humans too. They need a chance to breathe. They need a chance to be human and, and figure out their workload. But also that gives us a chance to tell the customers, here's this huge change we're making. Here's this small little thing you told us in discovery. We heard you. We threw that in there for you. And then here's this big, huge change we're making or this big, huge new thing we're going to implement. But here's this small thing that you mentioned and we heard you. And so it, again, continues with that relationship building of like, customers aren't always going to bring you this next huge innovative change. It may just be, I really need the button on the left versus the right because that's where my brain goes. And so that often is not a huge change, maybe not a huge, you know, huge win when it comes to your workload. But it could be a huge win for your customer just to say, I told them that they heard me and they did it. Mm. And so that I love to mix those kind of like little wins in because how cool as a product manager to be able to go back to your customers to say, I loved getting to talk to you. I heard you. And here's what we were able to do about it. Here's when it's coming out even better can you test it for me and tell me, is it working as you expect it to? Awesome. It'll be released on this day or in this release. One, one thing I was curious about in particular is that how do you incorporate the idea of innovation into product discovery? Where does that fit in for you? A lot of product people think, oh, well, I have to be the next Apple and I have to be the next Amazon or the next big world changer. And if you get to be, that's amazing, right? Like that's a huge career win and that's awesome. But 90% of us are not going to be. We may be an an innovator on a much smaller scale, whether it's in our specific industry or even for a very specific niche. And I think that that's okay. Like We should celebrate that win because to me, innovation comes along with that relationship building with your customer. That goes a lot further. And so I think allowing yourself to believe that's okay. Like believing that you can show up as who you are and your company can show up as who they are and you don't have to chase everything that everybody else is doing. Because if you're constantly chasing what everybody else is doing, trying to be on the forefront of innovation 24-7, then I think your discovery is going to follow that in the sense of like, you're going to ask all the wrong questions, right? You're going to be seeking yeses to the wrong questions and then you're not building the right thing in the long run anyway. So there goes all your money. Anyway, now you're not building the right thing for the right user at the right time because you're not solving the right problem. And so I think that can get you in a lot of trouble. You know, I equate that a lot to like the social media sensations where you think everyone's going to have one viral thing and your whole life's going to change and take off. That really doesn't happen to most of us or most people. And I think products the same way. Slow and steady often will win the race. And so... I think accepting of that is really what I would recommend uh, other than chasing innovation all the time. For me, it goes back to the philosophy that I try and do, which is don't let technology guide the product. Think about the problem first and the technology later on can be used as a layer on top of that, I suppose. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, I was talking to someone recently even about like Amazon, the UX is and the tech itself really, right? It's not that great if you really think about it. Um, and it's like, yeah, that, that's true because what they figured out is the problem that they solve. And they let technology be the second half of that. 
they worried about the customer piece and the problem and they let the technology come last and it's worked for them. And that's not always going to work for everybody. It depends on your user because certain user bases are going to have different expectations. Like I can tell you right now, my husband laughs at me all the time because as a product person, I'm never not QAing software. It's 24 seven. Like I had a commercial that I was watching with him the other day. I literally recorded my phone, like recorded the TV with my phone and sent it into the company. And I was like, you left the HTML tags on your commercial and like sent it to the company. And I was like, you should fix it. And he's like, can you not just sit down and watch the TV? <laughs> so it's like that, but that has, this goes along with knowing your user base, right? If they were just sending that commercial to a very non-technical person, they probably would never see that, would never know, wouldn't matter. And so again, where do you spend your time? Depends on what your users want and what problem you need to solve for them. How is generative AI affecting the product discovery space in particular? I mean, is that something that all product managers should be embracing now? I would encourage product managers to get on the train. You know, I, I, I think it's scary, right? I think there's emotions around it and I think we should acknowledge those emotions. Um, so I, I do want to acknowledge that. But I also want to acknowledge that I don't think that they're going away. And so I think you, you have a responsibility being in a role that is responsible for innovation to be on the forefront of it. And so specifically around product discovery, I see two big areas where you know, AI can play a big role. One of those is don't spend seven hours formulating what questions to ask. If you get really good at prompts, go in there and tell AI, this is the problem that my customers are experiencing. This is the target market that I think I'm reaching out to. This is the potential solution that I'm looking for. These are the things that I need to validate. Give me 75 questions to ask. And then you can pull from which ones you, you know, are important to you. But also, if you have a 75 question bank, guess what? You get to swap them out with different interviews, and then you're getting to iterate on your own questions as you go. And I think right there, don't tell me you don't have time for strategy now because it doesn't take you seven hours to get your questions together. It may take you 20 minutes. So there's another way to make more time for the strategy. If you already have an existing product, you can be garnering this feedback constantly, and it doesn't have to be you garnering the feedback. You can be the brains behind it. And I think that's the huge piece, the, the biggest part around the emotions around AI is, you know, who's actually kind of the brains behind this. But you can really set up these chatbots to tell it what information you want to gather, what information you're trying to get from your users, but let it help guide that information for you. But also gain consent on that chatbot that if they respond, you can gain some consent that says you have a right to reach out to me for clarification. And so if you get a really unique response or something that really piques your interest, reach out to that customer. You still have a right to build that relationship with them. Don't let the chatbot stop. Like, Don't let that be, okay, I got a multiple choice answer and that's it. That's the only data I'm getting. Just let that guide your conversation. Let that start it or let it pique your interest to figure out I had no idea this is what our customers were thinking. Now that completely changes the conversation that I intended to have with our customers. What, what other advice, I mean, outside of these efficiencies, would you give to teams wanting to do more product discovery? Maybe they kind of dip their toes into a little bit, but don't feel like they have time or maybe they, there's pressure to be a bit of a feature factory, let's say. 
Yeah, I would say if you feel the pressure to be a feature factory, I think that's a real pressure. And I want to validate that. I don't I don't want you to feel like you're alone. I think a huge majority of PMs and, and product teams feel that way. What I would encourage you to do is start at the top. Start with building that relationship with your leadership team. You know, we talk a lot about career confidence and empowerment in your career because what we get to do for a living is really freaking cool. Like when you really step back and get out of the day to day and think about it, a lot of times we are thinking about things that were scratched on napkins or brought up in somebody's head, and we are taking it from that to delivering it to the real world. But if you don't feel like you have the permission and empowerment to get out of that feature factory piece, start having those conversations with your leadership. Because also, you know, one of the pieces about our career is that product is still fairly new in the terms of length of career and what our career paths look like in comparison to other careers, right? I mean, you figure we're, you know, 20-ish years into modern day product management. And so it's still being developed. And so chances are your leadership may just not know. They may just not understand the false pretenses or pressure that they've put on you. So start opening the door and having those conversations. And I encourage you to do that by showing up as yourself, showing up empathetic in your own ways and being honest, but also be honest with yourself. There may be times where you start to open the door and have those conversations and they just don't go anywhere. And you may have to be honest with yourself and say, this isn't the right fit for me. I don't want to be in a feature factory. I want to be more strategic. And I know times are tough right now in the industry, but that's when you start using your network, start putting your feelers out there, figuring out where's the right fit for you because everyone has a right to build the career of their dreams. But I say so much of the change that happens with culture within your four walls of your company, but also culture with your users is all in how you show up and how you interact with each other. So be the change that you want to see in that culture, both upward and downward. Um, and if you you know, aren't enough to affect that change, find a place where you do fit in. But I think most of the time you can find that you have it within you to affect the change that you're looking to see. I think it's a great point around the, particularly the, the leadership side. And I mean, in my head, the PM role in particular is often around leading by influence rather than authority and uh, having that influence to the leadership team in that c- compelling narrative of, well, if we can do this, this unlocks this, or this is the value in doing this and really being able to be influential at that level. If, if you want to prove the value of doing more product discovery work, how would you approach that? So I would start with what does your leadership actually know about product development? Like, what do they actually know about the PELC? Because I would say most product teams report to a CTO or a CIO or even the COO. You know, it's still very rare that product teams are reporting to a product person. So there's problem number one. So right there, you have a lot of education to do. Again, where do you fit that on your plate? You're doing so many things, you don't have time, but it's an education piece. So how do you just simply teach them the effectiveness of product. And so, you know, use some real life examples, pull some from your own product. If you can, like, especially if you have an existing product, tell them I was going to go down this route, but a customer told us this is what really mattered to them. So we went down this route instead, and this was our result. And so likely you've probably just been reporting on the results only, right? Like, you know, the KPIs and the outcomes and the things you've been asked to report on but you probably haven't told them the inputs that went into that. You probably haven't told them what, what specific customer changed that for you. 
like let them in on those kind of conversations. And that also, I will say, goes back to that reporting conversation that I had, you know, at the very beginning is every time I'm new on a team, I sit down with the leadership and I tell them, what information do you actually need to make business decisions? Do you actually care about sprint velocity? Like, is that actually going to change the game for you? Do you actually care about, you know, how many stories we're putting in a quarter? Do you care about what, whatever it is? And if the answer is no to those, let's find out what they actually care about. Because at the end of the day, they may actually care about how many customers you're talking to every month, every quarter, every whatever, because that's actually a really strong tactic when they have to go publicly speak about the company or to the board or whatever to say, our product team is building the right thing because they're talking to our users 18 times a month. That's an impactful data point that they can say. And I can tell you what, most leaders, especially executives, they aren't saying those kind of data points. So not only are you changing the culture, you're elevating your own leadership. And how's that for influence? Because you're empowering them in their role while you're empowering yourself in your own role. Yeah, that's great. Um, just to, to wrap things up, product um, X Agile then, I'd love to get a bit more information from you about you know, what it's all about and maybe, maybe your role there and you know, what was the impetus for, for founding that as well. Yes. This is my soapbox. So just tell me to shut up when you need me to. <laughs> no. So um, yeah, I, like you mentioned, I'm a product trainer and a coach. Um, I had a really rough and bumpy start to product. Uh, I was a healthcare worker turned project manager turned product manager by accident. And when I got started, there really wasn't formal training other than go get your CSPO and that's everything you need. And so I did that. And then when I got back to my team, the question was still like, well, what the heck do I do? Great. I know the background of a product owner now, and I know what product is, but I don't know what to do. And so Product X Agile was founded so that you actually have tactical skills. We teach you, you take your class. It's less than two hours. Every course we teach, some of them are even 10, 15 minutes, take them on your lunch break. And when you leave, you open your computer at your very next meeting or your very next team meeting, and you're ready to implement what you learn. So that's exactly what we were founded on. And it's all about building the career of your dreams. So you're empowered if product's really where you want to be. You need skills that make you feel comfortable in that career. So that's what we were founded on. And so, yeah, I just continuing to chase down what are the skills that we hear PMs say that they're struggling in. So all of this product discovery stuff that we talk about, we're doing each and every day with PMs as well. We're talking to PMs all the time about what they're struggling with and, and what they need help with. And so, you know, some of our skills are very specific around like Jira, for instance. I'm Atlassian certified, but that doesn't mean I knew how to use Jira as a product manager to run my product team. So our Jira course is all of the tips and tricks on how to use Jira as a product manager and build more hours in your day. Atlassian's not going to teach you that, right? They're going to teach you how to use the software. We're going to teach you the tips and tricks you need in your role. And so that's all, how all of our courses are founded. Great. And what can people follow you online as well? So we are on all the socials at ProductXAgile. And then our website is ProductXAgile.com. And we'd love for you to follow us. We're always leaving just good tips and tricks throughout the day. But again, like I said, we're always looking for more feedback and more discovery ourselves. So anything you're struggling with in your careers, please share them with us. We want to make sure we're covering that content and sharing that out with you as well. Gabrielle, thanks so much for joining the podcast. It's been super interesting and I've learned a lot. So um, yeah, thank you so much for joining. 
Yeah. Thank you so much, Adam. Appreciate it. I hope you have a good rest of your day. You've been listening to the Product Development Podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please make sure to share it with your colleagues. Give us a follow on your preferred podcast platform and leave a rating. It's really appreciated and helps the podcast grow in the future. I'll see you in the next episode.